Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today for our episode, in the past we've talked about wokeism or the Great Awakening with Pastor Ramirez. We've discussed CRT, critical race theory, with Pastor Larry Bean. We've looked at the liberalizing and tendencies of not only the church at large or the culture at large, but even of the Missouri Synod, the feminization of the church. Well, today we have a special guest. His name is John Harris. He is the author of two books, Social Justice Goes to Church and Christianity and Social Justice. He is the host of the podcast, Conversations That Matter. And he's going to talk to us today about the woke infiltration of American churches and Christianity, some lessons and some advice. So welcome to the Godestine's crowd, John. Thank you, Jason. It's good to talk with you. I know it's been, what, a week and a half, and uh, <laughs> we, we got to see each other, and now uh, now we're, we're talking about, I, I guess, uh, what I presented at, at that particular uh, event. So um, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and uh, just appreciate the work you're doing. Well, thank you, and I appreciate your work. Uh, enjoyed uh, your Christianity and Social Justice book, and uh, I'll put links to all these things in the show notes for you. Um, but so maybe describe what you've seen occur with regard to this woke infiltration. Now, how do we, in hindsight, see that it happened? Uh, before we start getting into some some lessons and and some advice moving forward. Well, you know, historians and journalists are two different things, and I've functioned more, I suppose, as a journalist in the present, looking at things as they happen. And, uh, of course, a lot of things have happened over the last few years, namely mm-hmm. 2020. Uh, but I think when a historian looks back in, let's say, 100 years, and, they, and someone asks the question, well, how did these major evangelical denominations um, get infiltrated in a similar way to, to many of the main lines 100 years ago, they're probably going to start their story much earlier. And, and that's part of the reason I wrote Social Justice Goes to Church is to try to at least give a starting point. Um, late 60s, early 70s, you have some evangelicals or people at least operating in those circles start to imbibe some of these new left ideas, which is what they are. It's not Wokeness is not necessarily a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, the term itself, I, I know it can be helpful when people know, are on the same page and we know what that means, but it's not the most exact term. Um, right. Probably social justice or the uh, the new left, uh, some critical theory, you could even use that term. I mean, these all encapsulate what we're looking at. And um, the new left ideas of, of Herbert Marcuse and other Frankfurt scholars in the 1960s made their way into evangelical circles via... Um, people like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider and Wes Granberg Michelson and Sharon Gallagher and, and others. And, uh, and it made its way not just into um, uh, reform circles, which is some, it's common today, at least. Uh, I don't know in Lutheranism, but I know in broader evangelicalism to blame the Calvinists for this infiltration. But it's not, 
it's not really them, actually. I mean, it, th- this stuff made its way into Anabaptist circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Arkish and, and others in, in those circles. Um, it, it made its way into just about everything. Um, of course, the 70s is when the Lutherans, Missouri Synod has their battle for the Bible. And yeah. there, there's all kinds of um, challenges. Now, some of these challenges are a little different than the challenges today, but a lot of them are very similar. And, and if you go back and you read the Chicago Declaration of 1973, which a lot of major evangelicals signed, including Carl uh, F.H. Henry, uh, it is a. It, it sounds like it could have been written in 2020. It is mm. just the same egalitarian impulse: destroy the the institutions that are preventing equality. Uh, this is our Christian duty to do this. Racism is such a problem. Um, it, all of that, and um, and of course, they didn't use the word right, white privilege or woke or Black Lives Matter, but they're expressing the same exact concepts. Uh, I, I don't see a difference at least. Mm-hmm. So that made its way into some evangelical quarters, but then it got overshadowed by this populist religious right movement. And uh, I think that was a reaction to Carter's failed presidency, to the legalization of uh, abortion, mm-hmm. um, to um, just loosening sexual standards. And of course, for the next 20 years, that's all we hear about is the evangelical right. Um, but this was always a populist movement in the academy. You had these uh, more social justice leaning individuals, uh, academics making inroads and uh, teaching the professional class of evangelicals. And mm-hmm. um, I think in, <clears throat> well, if you think about the religious right, it was very media driven television preachers. But if you look at the woke incursion, uh, it's a lot of celebrity preachers on the internet. So there's a yeah. new technology and the left is able to capture that much more than the right and use it. Uh, in Christian circles. And um, you've got guys like David Platt, Matt Chandler, and Tim Keller, and so many others who rose to prominence uh, because of the internet, uh, in part, and and some of them authored books and things too. But uh, they end up becoming gurus for uh, young men who, um, and and many of them are reformed. That that is true. Many of them are Calvinists. But it's, like I said, I don't think this is particular to Calvinists. Every denomination is having this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they end up, uh, I think influencing people cross denominationally mm-hmm. and some of their views are very social justice leaning. Yeah. Um, and, and they kind of told the soil for 2020. So I, I saw this in a Southern Baptist seminary that, uh, students I saw in like 2011 students started hating America kind of like <laughs> it was this terrible place. Uh, so much, uh, blessing, uh, that they're really, I think it was a reaction against their parents. Their parents are taking it all for granted. Um, they have the big boat and the white picket fence. Meanwhile, people across the world are suffering and starving and, and this just isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so David Platt's radical, I, I think accompanied some of that. Um, but then you had in like 2015, uh, around that time y- you saw with these police shootings, uh, a lot of that same young crowd yeah. started, uh, going with the BLM line. And then of course, in 2020, it goes mainstream. That's when it, it it goes from the academy. It jumps. The virus gets out of the lab, and it goes right into the churches, and uh, and people are shocked in the pews. They thought, I, "What do you? What is this? I, I can't believe it." Well, this was happening for a while. You mm-hmm. just didn't see it because it was in academic institutions. Yeah. Um, so I see that all as one thing. I don't think it's just a new, out of the blue thing, but I think it's just now exposed, and people can see it for what it is. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers your question. No, no, that's great. Um, it, it did seem, I think for the average person in the pew, like it just came out of nowhere. 
but I, I think for a lot of the clergy, they had inklings of it prior to, particularly if they were somewhat recent graduates or they were paying attention to what was going on in politics, you know, the Obama era, uh, the race baiting that was going on and the the Me Too movement. I, I think those were all signs, but what do you think was keeping the average person in the pew from connecting the dots? Was it because they had a faithful pastor or or was there something else going on? Well, I think like a lot of things, if it doesn't affect your life directly, <laughs> you're not really too concerned with it. And yeah. it didn't affect our lives directly until 2020. And we could see businesses being destroyed and, and all the rest. So that, I think, I think they expected their pastors and their leaders to uh, condemn it. And then, of course, that did not happen. And instead, they're condemning conspiracy theorists and people who uh, decide not to wear masks. And, and they just thought, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah. Um, where's the priority here? So I, I, they can smell hypocrisy. And I think that's probably explains a large part of why people all of a sudden noticed it. Um, why they didn't before, uh, I mean, obviously, they're the not paying complete attention uh, and, and not feeling that one needs to. But but there's also this uh, mentality of w- our leaders are good. We trust our leaders. We trust our institutions in general. Um, and, and a lot of institutions are losing their credibility at the same time. We have to remember that. So mm-hmm. uh, you trusted your doctor, right? Well, now after 2020, <laughs> do you really trust your doctor to recommend right. the right vaccines for you and that kind of thing? Um we trusted our, our political system. Well, after 2020, do you really trust the political system that the votes that are being cast are actually tabulated correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things like this that are happening. Uh, Disney, you know, that's a family friendly place. We trust we can go on a vacation there and not be accosted. Well, do you really trust Disney right. to do that? And, and it's the same with churches, I think. At the same time, it's, you know, do you really trust uh, your denomination or Christian organizations to actually, um, maintain orthodoxy uh, after you saw them capitulate so hard on some of these things. Yeah. So 2020 really acted as a watershed moment in terms of um, apocalypse that is revealing of what was already there. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm actually somewhat grateful for it, not for yeah. the, obviously the property damage and all the rest, but I was seeing this for years in a Southern Baptist seminary, and I just thought, and it was a major seminary, and I thought, how come no one's speaking about this? How come yeah. they must not know? And then, of course, in 2020, there's no excuse now. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. So, so is it as simple as kind of drawing a line, you, you either get it or you don't? or are Because on both sides, they're both quoting the Bible. They're both claiming divine authority for what they're sta- stating. Is, the, is it just as simple as drawing that line down the middle like, they have the Bible right and they have the Bible wrong, uh, or is is there a um, is there a truth in what they're saying? Uh, the, the the woke side. Yeah, there. So it's interesting. I was reading um, this book by Roger Scruton called "How to Be a Conservative," and of course, Roger Scruton is not. Uh, I, I think he's Catholic, if I'm not mistaken, Roman Catholic. But he, mm-hmm. um, but 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 he's talking more about political conservatism and this Burkean tradition and. Um, and, and his chapters are interesting because he, he says things like the truth in envir- environmentalism, the truth in socialism, the truth in capitalism. The tr- he, he always finds these like kernels of truth that are then um, used to build an entire ideology, which is totally faulty. But there is this kernel of truth 
uh, that, uh, for example, with socialism, um, he talks about the fact that uh, we actually are born into communities with responsibilities to those communities. Mm. That's that's true. Like that's not uh, something the socialists came up with. Right. And if you're contrasting that with um, atomistic individualism of some kind, then of course uh, the individualists have it wrong on that point. But um, and I'm not talking about individual rights. Obviously, I'm talking about like individual autonomy. But, yeah. um, you know, it's not. But if he disagrees with socialism, socialism is now this entire ideology that's formed based on that. It's almost like a religion that's been uh, has its own uh, holy books and, and creeds and um, perspectives. You're not allowed to challenge and sense of, of heaven and salvation. And so, so this whole like infrastructure builds up around this central truth and tries to use that central truth to then uh, promote redistributive schemes and that kind of thing. And so um, I see something similar here where I think initially for a lot of Christians who are well-meaning, it might sound good. It might sound like, uh, yeah, we should be fair. We should, uh, justice is a Christian virtue. Um, we should uh, treat people the way they ought to be treated. If there was an injustice done, we should recompense that. Um, what's to disagree with there? And so mm -hmm. there's this kernel of truth, I think, that of course, if someone is stolen from, uh, they need to be uh, recompensed for that. But then it turns into the the metric used to determine whether someone's stolen from is broken, and it's determined based upon things like your uh, the, where you rank on an intersectionality scale, right? Um, and and so so that's actually injustice. You're not you're putting the blinders on in order to, um, uh, or I should say, Lady Justice is actually taking the blinders off rather, yeah, uh, to determine who is right and who is wrong in a situation. Um, so it's not actually justice, but on the front end, it can look like justice because it kind of resembles certain aspects of it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's where laymen who, who in the pews were, were attracted to it. Yeah. Okay. So 2020 reveals it all and the push for some of this, as you've noted, is coming from the academies or from the elite. So who are the major players uh, maybe not specifically, but just in terms of vocational office, who are the major players who are either advancing this or or trying to push back against it? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the Missouri Synod, so sure. I can't really speak to uh, that as well. Um, I, I know you have your social justice uh, advocates. Um, and, and of course, there's a range here because, um, and this is why the word woke sometimes isn't the most helpful in broader conversations. I mean, we can talk about it. We know what we mean. But yeah. um, when, when someone says you're woke, what does that mean? Are you, if you're not pro-transgender, some people don't think you're woke at all. Right. So being pro-BLM is, is not woke. It's being pro-trans. And if the word has just changed. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, w w it's a sliding scale. And, and I, I'll just tell you, say what I think. I mean, I think that the um, looking at the trajectory of this, the race issue seems to be the issue that captured most people's attention early on and then mm -hmm. became the gateway to these other things. Okay. Um, you, you, you could say, I guess you could make an argument that the feminism also, but that's more in the academy, the secular academy. Um, I, I, maybe they run parallel, but I think for Christians in particular, it was the race issue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that starts with, you know, Ferguson, Missouri and Freddie Gray and, and shootings in the mid or like, you know, between 2000, like 12 and 2018 or so. Mm -hmm. And um, in that time period, uh, you have figures, I mentioned a few already, like Tim Keller, uh, David Platt, Matt Chandler, 
uh, Russell Moore, uh, David French. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. The list goes on and on. Uh, Lingan Duncan in, in the PCA. Um, uh, trying to remember the guy's name who wrote Woke Church. Eric Mason. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's a number of these guys that are starting to say things that I don't think they would have been able to say 10 years previous, but because of the political news cycle, they're able to say them. And um, that just kind of, that's a spoonful of sugar, I guess, before the medicine goes down in 2020. And you see, broadly speaking, uh, pastors ad- adopting the same language, like like almost everyone did at yeah. that time. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, those nine marks ministries, I mean, one of the ministries I, I think pushing for this kind of woke race narrative uh, in the church, um, gospel coalition would be another organization and the people affiliated with them. So, so the people, as you said, tend to trust their institutions. Um, uh, in your discussion that, you know, that we had a week ago, you kind of line out four different groups of people that either advocated or allowed this woke ideology to infiltrate into churches or church institutions um, or, or push back against it. Um, I think that g- gave us a really good framework for understanding kind of how this works. Take us through what those four those four kinds of or groups of people are and you know what we should be looking out for. Yeah, I mean, this is subject to, um, I suppose, improvement. Like the old farmer said, it's not much, but it's honest work. It's, yeah, I'm just trying to to, to look at uh, what were the different reactions I saw, what were helpful, what weren't, and and there's really four different offices that I detected. Um, you you have your activists, your managers, your academics, and your shepherds, mm-hmm. and each of these people, and they could all, by the way, be in a pastoral role. Uh, they could all be in a, in a denominational leadership role. Um, but they all uh, have these different, uh, w- when you like peel the onion layers back, they, their actual role is one of these four. And, um, and then that determined the posture that they took. So the activists, I think with a, a motivation generally of a, a corrupt motivation would um, just full wholesale practice social justice. They'd adopt the whole entire thing and say, uh, this is uh, at least the ideology. This is part of Christianity. It's part of the gospel or it's without it. You don't have the gospel, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so th- they are syncretists of the highest order. And I think that should just be condemned as a false gospel. That's just, uh, that's like Galatian heresy stuff. They're saying mm-hmm. that you need to do these works in order to be saved. Um, in, in a sense, in so many steps, uh, the the second category of not so helpful reactions uh, would be the managers who I think, you know, they, they may maintain a certain level of orthodoxy, but uh, they think that they can compromise with this and they can participate. For example, we can go march with BLM. We can um, chant their chants. But we cannot, let's say, uh, contradict our denominational um, orthodox statements on sexuality or something. So, so they'll draw a line somewhere, mm-hmm. but it's the whole purpose is to maintain the institution, make sure that it survives, make sure it doesn't implode. Um, if there's pressure from the government or the media, 
let's try to ease that pressure off by throwing them a bone. Mm -hmm. Um, and let's try to satisfy our uh, liberal congregants. Um, and, and I think the assumption was that the conservatives in the pews are just going to go along with what we say because they tend to respect their leadership. Hmm. Uh, and so th- there was a preference given to, I think, the left. Um, we're seeing, I think, a, a change in that. At least I'm noticing that some of these same individuals are now trying to say they're against wokeism because it's pushed so far where we're trans and kids. Yeah. And they're saying, well, that's wrong, right? You know, they're preaching against it. Meanwhile, they were hosting these the, these worship services in 2020 where they they had like minorities coming forward to share their uh, their perspectives, which I guess white people can't understand or something. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so I would say those people are still they're they're woke, <laughs> but they're just they're saying, hey, it's moving too fast. Not not that uh, we'll, we'll accept this, but not that. And the hope is that they can um, navigate these uh, these waters, so to speak, that are that are so rough. Uh, and then the third not so helpful category are the academics who um, seem to. And, and of course, this is this could be a subset of the managers. They just they, they look at everything in a more of an abstract way. And so they permit social justice to an extent. And, and um, it really, I think it's due to cowardice more than anything else. They won't identify the people who are actually promoting it. Uh, mm. They won't uh, go after the, the bad guys, so to speak. They instead, um, w- when they critique aspects of it, they do it in the abstract. And they'll, um, so some of the, th- this can range. Some of these people uh, will permit uh, uh, permit it uh, under protest, but you wouldn't know about their protest because it's a silent protest <laughs> or it's, a, it's too esoteric for the people to really understand what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, or th- they might permit, like the manager, certain aspects of it that they think don't interfere with orthodoxy somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but they're not helpful at all because they just don't actually call a spade a spade. Unlike Jesus or Paul, they're not actually letting you know who they're talking about or what exactly they're talking about. They're using this language that laymen can't really access. And I think laymen tend to think, oh, our pastor has it under control. He's smart. He knows yeah. what's going on. Um, I- I've had s- many laymen uh, tell me, not my pastor. My pastor is good. My pastor spoke against social justice and and I'll ask them, okay, so in your circles, and this is mostly, this isn't like Southern Baptist circles, but, um, PCA too, I guess, uh, you know, I'll ask like, okay, so what about the people in your own denominations that are publishing books, promoting these perspectives? Hey, I saw your pastor was with them last week at a conference, right? Uh, Headlining the stage. Uh, what, uh, what, what does he say about them? What do you mean? You know, they're they're fine. They're they they're not, and, and it so it gives this false sense of security that the pastor has said what he needs to say, but yet uh, the social justice influence is still there. Uh, and then, of course, the fourth category is the helpful and the the one I advocate, which is I think the, the more biblical model of being a shepherd. And shepherds mm-hmm. aren't afraid to shoot the wolves, protect the sheep, uh, sacrifice themselves. The institution doesn't really matter as much as uh, God's institution, the church. And so they are willing to call a spade a spade. They prevent social justice from taking root. They have courage. Uh, this is what I, I, I advocate. And, and unfortunately, um, I don't have many examples of that in national or international upper echelons. It seems to be it's more um, working class pastors, uh, at least in my experience, in individual churches across the country who have taken these hard stands mm-hmm. and and that says something something's wrong with our elites and and so i don't know exactly what the solution is for all this but but we do have a problem yeah now do you think 
you know, some of the things that go on in terms of discussions within the Missouri Senate is that those particular offices are corrupting themselves, right? So you can find a great guy who can kind of ascend into those upper offices, whether it's in academics or even leadership positions within the Synod, and that uh, almost invariably you will hear conservative confessional Lutherans say, well, you know, we just pray that the office doesn't corrupt the man. And yeah. uh, is there something to that? Uh, do, is there a shift in thinking that they they lose their grounding on what matters and they, as you said, think only then about the the health of the institution itself? Well, I mean, we see this in politics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing. You elect a conservative uh individual to a political office and you think they they're going to do what they said in their campaign they're going to represent their constituents uh, the way they said they would represent them and they get there and of course things change <laughs> and yeah. uh i mean you, you could come up with a, a probably a long list of people who 10 years ago you thought were super conservative and now you, you don't have much faith in them and i think it's the same thing it's it's uh there's this there's a lot of pitfalls, I I suppose, with power. Once you get into these positions and you think that you're something special, you can uh, do things that other people can't do because you're qualified to do them, that pride, I think, can go to your head. You can can start thinking of yourself. And and this is more likely what I see, I I suppose. You start changing your identity a little bit. You you start, instead of identifying with uh, the sheep in your pasture, who you're supposed to be serving, um, instead, you start identifying with the other shepherds uh, and, and and thinking that uh, you're part of the same guild. You need to protect the shepherds. You need to protect this this uh, social class that you're part of. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of money uh, also tied to all this, but but there's a there's a social status here, and um, and so as long as you see yourself as part of that group and using uh, language that only that group uses, and and going to the events that that group um, goes to, and um, and, and knowing the people and seeking the privileges that are associated with that group, then you become very defensive. And if someone in your guild uh, steps out of line, let's say, you're very reluctant to go after them because you know that if you do so, you can make an enemy of everyone else. Um, so it's it's like the trade guilds of, of ancient medieval times in a way, mm. like you're, you're sticking up for each other and uh, you forget about your responsibility. Your responsibility is to the sheep. It's not to these other shepherds, uh, if you would. So, um, I, I think that's probably a similar dynamic to what's happening in, in DC. You just become part of this class. You change your whole identity, the way that you live your, your lifestyle. It takes a really strong person of integrity to resist that. And yeah. there are people who do, mm-hmm. um, there was, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name now. And I, uh, man King, I think it was, uh, Senator King in Iowa. Oh yeah. Um, Stephen King. Yeah, 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 Stephen King. Right, right, right. And I, I met him before. And anyway, he got kind of uh, misrepresented by the New York Times, and then you know all these conservatives piled on. It was, it was disgusting what happened to him. Yeah. Um. And, and but anyway, you know, he's one of these guys that um. Because I asked him once about that, I said, "How come you're you're different? You just seem different. You're you're so uh like down to earth. You you don't normal. talk to me as an old. You're normal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. We can spot it by using that simple word, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't feel like, um, l- l- like I would be, 
out of, I don't know, like we, we'd be a fish out of water if we both like walked into a five guys and got burgers. Like, right. I don't think you need filet mignon. Like you're just a normal guy. And he goes, well, I spent more time here than I did in Washington. I would come back and, and this drove, I guess, some people crazy. But he said, um, I, you know, I, I didn't go to the parties. I never went to the parties. And I, I guess that's a thing when you get to Washington, there's these cocktail parties. And he said, you know, I, I knew that that wasn't really right. That's not what I was here for. Um, so every moment that he could spend away from Washington, he did. And, and, you know, that means he identifies more with his constituents and represents their, uh, the issues that they care about. And, Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really wise and interesting perspective. Yeah, no, that, that is good. Um, you, cause you do get the sense from, from other Missouri Synod pastors, again, conservative confessionals that, that, you know, you see a good guy kind of rise up and then it's like they've lost their moorings and their bearings all at once. And, uh, and I really like your description of how it becomes a protection of the guild instead of uh, a protection of the sheep. And that's primary. I, going back to your other unhelpful ones or the adversarial position, so to speak, I don't know if we really need to go into depth on the activists. I think almost everyone can spot that and say what it is. I think the difficult ones to discuss and then to decide what to do about are the the, the managers and the academics, because it seems as they walk a very fine line and it's, well, it's deceptive like an angel of light. Um, is anyone willing to say that about these people though? Uh, is there anyone willing to say, all right, fine, the, the activists, but is anyone willing to say of those who come under the guise or the appearance of godliness, but actually are promoting something different, that they are part of the problem, they are the enemy? Yeah, in my experience, not many people are, especially if they work in the denomination or organization uh, it, it, laymen some can spot it sometimes, but um, I use the example for uh, academics is one of the hardest because they actually do say things that are true. They just don't actually identify where the threat is coming from, and then they will new they, they will try to counterbalance what they say against the left with very specific uh, denunciations of the right. Uh. <laughs> and and I and I'll just say uh, let me give a few examples and then I'll talk to the Missouri Synod, um, even though I'm not an expert on that, but I I have seen some of this. So Carl Truman, uh, Kevin DeYoung and John Payne are the three that I used in in my paper Mm because Carl Truman would publicly say things against critical race theory, yet he defended his college, Grove City College, when parents and students exposed it for promoting, guess what, critical race theory teachings. Uh, So so you have that. You have Kevin DeYoung um, criticizing critical race theory, yet He's at the T4G conference, which is this big reformed evangelical conference, and he's with his pastor, Bobby Scott, and Bobby Scott suggests that the, the Christians in the audience are uh, failing to fully accomplish the ministry of reconciliation, which, of course, we know what that is. I mean, this is the reconciliation of God and man uh, through the man Christ Jesus, and, and he says that they, the room has failed because they lack diversity. And Kevin DeYoung just kind of nods along with it, and and doesn't really correct it. Does lets it happen, um, and 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 so you know, and John Payne, that's the other one, um, another example. Uh, he's big in the PCA at the Gospel Reformation Network, which people think that's the conservative wing of the PCA. 
Um, yet, and he, and, and actually I should say Lincoln Duncan is also in that. Lincoln Duncan wrote the forward to woke church, but somehow he's in this conservative uh, group. And John Payne's the, the leader of it, and he condemned revoice theology, which is this uh, softening of homosexual orientation uh, to make it palatable for Christians. Um, yet he refers to key PCA leaders who promote it and also corrupt the gospel as friends from different perspectives and brothers in Christ. So you have guys like that. Now, in the um, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, and I have not paid attention to this as closely, so you are free to correct me if mm -hmm. I am off on this, but your own president, President Harrison, I think does something similar to this because you had this um, situation with your, uh, uh, the, I guess, the release of a commentary that was associated with the larger catechism. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, uh, a release of Luther's large catechism with um, applications and annotations. So mainly historical annotations and then uh, essays that applied what was in Luther's catechism to more modern day examples. Right. And and I've read a number of these uh, examples. I know uh, Ryan Turnipseed on Twitter had this whole thread about it. And so mm -hmm. I, I went and I looked at uh, some of these issues. And of, of course, there are some really big issues there. And, and I think to, to President Harrison's credit, he said, well, we got to relook at this when there was kind of a controversy over it. Mm -hmm. But it didn't take him very long to um, keep those uh the, those uh commentaries i guess for lack of a better term um applications you said mm -hmm. and uh and defend them but the way he defended them was by condemning the source of the accusations against them by saying mm -hmm. basically we have a neo-nazi problem we have <laughs> we have these horrible deplorable people who think things like i don't know like like uh that they're racist they're, they have sexist tendencies they want to uh, kill homosexuals using the death penalty. And and this is the source or the origin of the criticisms of these applications. And 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 that was used to dismiss the criticisms, right. which are legitimate criticisms and were made by obviously a lot of people who weren't. And I think he even admits there are people who aren't that who also have concerns, but, but by poisoning the well, by making it so uh, that, that it's Nazis, let's say, who are the provocateurs who, who started this whole ball rolling. Mm -hmm. Uh, people don't want to be associated with criticizing it. That's a scary thing. I don't want to be with the Nazis, right? I mean, clearly they must be on the wrong side. And so, um, something like that, I think it, like there's no problem, like identifying those people using their names even, or at least like in a way that you know exactly who you're talking about and condemning them and condemning them hard. And President Harrison doesn't seem to have a problem doing that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the people who are actually employed by the denomination, that's the thing. They're not yeah. no-namers. They're, they're people on the payroll. That You got to be careful with that. You can't really, uh, you can't talk about those people. You must attribute good motives. That's the difference. It's that unequal weights and, and, and measures mm -hmm. uh, that God so hates that I see in the upper echelon. Yeah. And what, what do we do about that? I don't know. I mean, you need new leadership. We all we all do in like every institution. But uh, those great men don't seem to be arising um, at least as fast as we'd like. So is that something to strive for to, to find those men to rise there? Or should we be focusing on something else? Well, I think um, there is a system of rewards that the left has become really good at doling out to people where um, they will privilege the people who play ball. Uh -huh. And so they lock the door behind them and you can't get in unless you have the secret password. 
And the secret password is you have to basically promise, sign the NDA and promise never to criticize them, right? <laughs> That's basically the secret password. So if you are unwilling to sell your soul <laughs> at um, a lower level, it's very hard to get into those upper levels. And, and I should say that there is, I, I can see some benefit to this. I mean, think about it if it was conservatives who believe uh, the truth of God's word and orthodox theology, so forth. And they're saying, we're not going to let anyone in who doesn't believe what we believe. We would say that's a good thing, right? Yeah. But but, but for some reason, people in that category tend to be reluctant more to enforce uh, that kind of a boundary. They seem, they, they want to be known as nice and, and like they're not too rigid or uh, I guess in, in the case of, of, you know, President Harrison's criticism, Nazi-esque or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they're much more lenient and, and they leave the door unlocked and people can just walk in and um, and I don't know at what point, like the Missouri Synod, uh, this happened. I think the Southern Baptists had this happen probably in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s somewhere, uh, where they just people, they started letting people in who should not have been let in. And um, and then those people, uh, they're after power, and they, they rise to these prominent positions, and then they lock the doors. And so that's the problem we have. Um, they dole out the rewards and, and that incentivizes more of people like them rising through the ranks who ingratiate themselves to the center. Um, I think what conservatives can do, and then we need to think really creatively about this, is we need to start doling out our own rewards for loyalty and, and loyalty, mm. obviously, to Christ, fidelity to scripture, that kind of thing. Yeah. We need to figure out ways to platform people so that when they, they hate, take risks, uh, risking their careers, uh, whatever they, they end up risking, they know that there's going to be a community that will receive them. Um, there's going to be a, a parade for them <laughs> even. Yeah. Um, I remember when Ted Cruz, this was years and years ago, of course, when he uh, took this courageous stand against Obamacare and he lost and he goes back to Texas and everyone cheers for him. They throw a big party for him. And I thought that's, we need more of that. Like that's what, what needs to happen is you take a courageous stand and let's say, you, you know, you'd, you got kicked out of your job or, or you didn't make the cut. Um, you're not going to rise the ranks anymore, but look, there's a group of people that really appreciate you. And, and I think that can make, um, not that we have to make orthodoxy attractive. We should, we, we, orthodoxy is attractive in and of itself, but we can at least, I guess, help incentivize or counterbalance the incentivization that's going on on the other side to, uh, form our own networks in which there's a hierarchy of, of sorts, uh, even within denominations that you, you can have natural hierarchies. Uh, I talk about this in the paper, this natural aristocracy idea that Jefferson had, where um, it's not about position. It's about there, there's like a social order mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> the people who are trustworthy and loyal, they will rise in that social order and be known as people with integrity because they've been tested. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think forming networks within, let's say, we'll use the Missouri Synod as an example of conservatives who are getting together for their own, uh, cl- you know, closed meeting events or, or maybe even public events where um, they, they have uh, speakers and um, there's books and there's, you know, all the things that the other side has, that's going to start to build your leadership class. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll have an alternative leadership class that can either take power when the time comes or, uh, you know, if things need to split, then, then you at least have the, the brain trust to be able to do it. Yeah. The, the foundations are laid to be able to land somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, so besides the academics th- that you're talking about, 
like Carl Truman and and so forth. Um, you mentioned the managers who t- tend to be the kind of the pastors trying to play both sides. Did I get that right? Yeah, they want to make sure that everyone in their congregation is happy, whether they're politically on the left or right. Uh, they just want to make sure the institution survives and has as much money coming in, really. I mean, I'll be blunt, as possible. Yeah. So they're looking to save their own position. So they're thinking about themselves, not about what is true and faithful and beneficial to the sheep. Yeah, they're they're looking at things and and, and thinking, how can I keep my job how can this institution survive? Um, what about uh, the people that fund this institution? How can I keep them happy? They're not thinking about, at least as much, about uh, the people in the pews who are being ravaged by false doctrine. That's um, not, and it's not that they don't think about it ever. It's just that it doesn't score high on the priority list. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me lo- that what you describe in terms of having our own system of rewards that is conservative, confessional, Lutherans, or other Christian denominations, having our own system of rewards would would actually help along those people who tend to try to walk this fine line of just managing everything. Do you think that would work as well for for, for that kind of group of people? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, look at Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees for a moment, because you have a similar dynamic. The Pharisees had a, a strong in-group preference for themselves, mm-hmm. even against the Sadducees. And, um, and of course, they were, the, as many point out, the more religious conservatives, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of their theology was actually not bad. Um, but they, uh, they, of course, neglected the weightier matters of the law. They couldn't. They didn't know Moses because if they did, they would have known who Jesus was. They rejected mm-hmm. the Messiah, and um, and in so doing this, they uh, Jesus critiques them and says, "You swallow um, uh, camels, but strain at gnats." Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah, so they basically they have a, a sense of proportion that's off, and um, they seem concerned with maintaining their own social hierarchy that they are the the ones who are in leadership and. Uh, they, Jesus is a threat because of that. That's their main problem with Jesus. It seems that he is a threat to their power, their their dominion. Um, I think if, you know if he would have said the same things, but then also included the Pharisees and complimented the Pharisees, and they probably wouldn't have had a big problem as yeah. at least as much. But but because he challenged their authority directly, uh, he had to go. And um, and and that's a similar thing I think here. You you have managers who they have these institutions. That people are members of, and they don't want those institutions challenged. They don't want their authority challenged. Uh, they don't want people thinking that they're incompetent to fulfill their role or something. So um, they will they will attack whatever they think is uh, is against them. But Jesus has twelve disciples that he is personally training, and he has, of course, as we find out after his resurrection, he he had more than that. He had hundreds of people following him. Uh, so that, you know, uh, small case D disciples, I suppose, mm-hmm. who are, are also uh, looking to Jesus as an authority. And of course, uh, you know, that's why the Pharisees didn't like him. So um, there, there is this, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, a system of rewards there because, um, you know, Jesus gives them this new leadership model that if they're, if they need to serve others and if they serve others, they'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, 
that whole though being greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you know, that, that is an incentive <laughs> that is uh, something to strive for. That's not like something to just neglect. So, so these the, the apostles, um, the, these 12 apostles have, they have rank, even though it's not um, given through like a, a, maybe a specific position other than apostle uh, there, even within uh, the inner network, you have the three apostles who are closer to Jesus you have, of course, Judas is taking care of the finances, so they have different roles they play. Um, it's an institution in a way. And of course, mm-hmm. the church is the institution that's birthed from this. Um, but uh, but I think y- you see Jesus doing this, and, and it's something similar that needs to happen, I think, today, with even within these denominations. If you're not going to leave or form your own thing, at least within the denomination, uh, start a, a more a special group uh, of people that have that loyalty to one another over orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And will um, promote the right things. We'll have each other's back. Uh, there, there's rewards for joining that club, uh, so to speak. Um, it, it didn't used to be like a foreign thing in the United States to have these like gentlemen's clubs where you would go and it would be like you, you know you'd have like a fitness center or a I don't know you know different uh, sports like like horse riding or bowling or yeah uh, these voluntary organizations. Uh, now that's kind of different. I guess we don't have that as much, but yeah, no, um, the word gentleman's club means something very different today. <laughs> it, yes, you know, you're right. And I kind of caught myself as I, as I said that I was thinking, huh, you know, that's, uh, it's an antiquated term, I suppose. Cause it's, yeah, it just means you're going to like some dirty area, <laughs> but yeah, you know, um, but, but I'm talking about it. Yeah. Obviously in the legitimate sense, like you could join a croquet yeah, cake club or something and <laughs> Uh, go, it's just, men who get together naturally are going to uh, share intimate things uh, with mm-hmm. other men. They're going to uh, trust each other. They're going to learn loyalty and those bonds are going to form. And those that's what you need. You need those bonds to form and they can't form if you don't spend time together. Yeah. Don't go to the gentleman's club in your community though. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if there is one. Yeah. So what is really needed now are shepherds who have the courage to prevent. Uh, I have a, a member who says, you know, what you permit, you promote. And we need, we need guys with courage to step forward in, in all of Christendom to step forward and take those risks. Um, what are the risks? I mean, what have we seen when people do actually step forward? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you have an example in your own denomination with uh, Professor Scholes and yeah. his stand, uh, and he's more or less made an example of he can't teach. Um, I think uh, I've seen in the Southern Baptist denomination, uh, Dr. Russell Fuller, Dr. Bobby Lopez uh, are two examples of professors who did take a stand. Bobby Lopez, um, perhaps less known than Russell Fuller at this point, but he uh, it was, uh, he's a former homosexual and, mm-hmm. um, he was converted and, uh, he wanted to speak about that and, and give his testimony and tell people that he was, uh, that, that you can not only be saved and, and still be homosexual, you can actually be saved and you can become heterosexual. You can have a wife and kids. And of course this was out of step with what the ethics and religious liberty commission was trying, was saying about that same issue. They were saying that they, they were pushing the same sex attraction isn't sin in mm-hmm. line. And so, you know, homosexuals can come to Jesus and you don't have to become heterosexual. It, usually they say things like it's about holiness, not heterosexuality. And um, and so Bobby Lopez challenged that and he was pulled in. He actually recorded some of these meetings, which I, I encourage people to do. I mean, it's, it, 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 
in, in a time past, that would have been rude. But at this point, with people getting fired over these things, uh, the sheep need to know what they're funding. Mm-hmm. And so he recorded some conversations with, uh, I think it was a provost, basically saying that, look, you, you, the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, doesn't like you. And uh, if you share your testimony again, and you mention this, you, you need to get, pr- first of all, prior written approval. But if you do it without that written approval, we're, there's going to be consequences. And of course, um, he said, I'm not getting written approval to share my testimony. And he was fired. Um, and of course, after the, the, the case, you know, they didn't know he was, they were being recorded, but after the fact they're saying it, they try to attribute it to some other thing. Um, it, 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 it's not really the, him sharing his testimony about God saving him from homosexuality. It's something else. But, but of course that, that certainly factored into why, and I think it was the reason, um, you have Russell Fuller who, uh, took a stand against things directly happening on campus. Uh-huh. Uh, at Southern Seminary, so you, you had some higher criticism and some wokeness, and and he took a, a public stand against it. Uh, it. First, I mean, he went through the proper channels. He talked to everyone that uh, was in leadership. He didn't get anywhere. He took uh, stands at you know faculty meetings, uh, and then he was fired because uh, he wouldn't toe the line. And so then he went public and he let the sheep know this is the institution your your funding your money if you give to the Southern Baptist Convention is going to fund this. Uh, institution and this is what they're promoting there and so um yeah i mean generally the people with courage they're not actually fuller's an interesting um uh case of this they they're not well connected at least not as well connected as they think they are because fuller thought well i've had private conversations with a number of people at my institution and they all seem to agree with me and um and in fact, he was fired with like three other professors and, and, and all of them had taken conservative stands at the university. And yet uh, at least two of them, uh, one of them kind of stood by him. But the other two, uh, you know, they just they signed NDAs. <laughs> they wouldn't talk about it. Um, of course, they, they link these NDAs to your pay, uh, to your final pay and to mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, benefits like you, you can send your children there tuition free, that kind of thing. So uh, if you break the NDA, you're losing out on a lot. And so Fuller, Fuller wouldn't sign the NDA. Um, this other guy, Scott Warwick, who was a professor there, would not sign the NDA. And they found out that all those people that they thought were going to stand with them and the faculty who were principled, they were nowhere to be found. Mm. And, 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 and so they did not have that network, which is what I'm describing, um, which, which is what I think needs to happen. There needs to be a, a network's of people who really support each other. So, so if let, let's say that Russell Fuller in this, or, or Professor Scholes will say either way, they have a network uh, there at the institution of like-minded professors, staff members, uh, administrators. And if you make an enemy of Scholes, you make an enemy of all of us, right? Yeah. Well, that's something that uh, the administration has to now calculate. Do we want to make an enemy now of, you know, a, a third of our faculty or something? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the strength, I think, comes in in, in numbers. And, and the only way, like I said, it can form is by taking some initiative and really like having people over to your house, having um, just really forming tight bonds with your coworkers yeah. um, in these places. And, and and then a natural hierarchy is going to arise from that. There's, there's going to be leaders. It's not the person with the label. It's the person who leads who's the leader. So. No, it, you make a great point because I remember that was a great frustration during the Schultz um, lynching, so to speak, which was, I kept looking, you know, where are the other 
confessional conservative Lutheran professors at that institution stepping forward and making it known. And I re- just remember being very frustrated that you know, I was talking, we had, you know, Peter Scare, who is a professor at our seminary in Fort Wayne, he was talking in support of, there were other pastors in the area in Wisconsin who were, were supportive, but it, it didn't even seem like even the theology faculty at the time was really stepping forward. And though he, maybe he went forward thinking he had a cadre of supporters, it all kind of evaporated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> common story, unfortunately. Yeah, that's... Uh, so just as a mindset, like if it, if we as pastors uh, it cross-denominationally, do you think we need to have those not only within your denomination, but also beyond? Do you think we there needs to be a forming of, I don't know, like anti-woke Christians that vow to come to one another's aid when these things happen? Yeah, I mean, th- there's been attempts at this. You have the Dallas Statement uh, from 2000, I think, 19. So it was actually pre-2020. And there was, uh, maybe it was late 2018, actually, I'm not sure. But uh, you have a bunch of guys who were, uh, I-, I think there were Baptists and Presbyterians. I'm trying to think if there's other traditions represented. It was mostly reform people mm-hmm. um, that signed this. And, and one of the issues, I guess, with forming what you're saying is that um, again, reform people will tend to uh, associate with other reform people, and um, you, you have you know Arminian types are going to associate with their own, or Anabaptists or Lutherans are going to associate with their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there hasn't been like a, maybe as much of a united effort. That was that's the biggest united effort I can think of. Um, and some of the big names on that were like John MacArthur, Doug Wilson signed it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. Other than that, I'm trying to think big names. Uh, I think Steve Lawson. I mean, it's mostly people in these like Ligonier G3 uh, Shepherds Conference circles. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, something I, I, I do think that something else needs to form. And and, and so I'll, I'll just be blunt because I don't have any institution that I'm <laughs> um, affiliated with that's nervous about what I say. So I can just say what I want to say. But I'll, I'll just say this about some of the groups that I've even have audience uh, with share an audience with. And um, a lot of the people that surround these big names, like John MacArthur, let's say um, they're not of the same caliber as he is. They are there for social benefits. I'm just, I, I, I have stories to back it up. I don't want to mm-hmm. bring those out, but I, it is just the case that he is an industry. And a lot of these places, if, especially if there's a big name, uh, that institution is its own industry. And you get social benefits from riding the coattails, and from yeah. and you, and you'll say whatever you need to say. You'll flatter uh, in order to get a position, and so um, so that's kind of a problem in these places. Uh, but what it does is um, it, it creates this strong in group preference. I think sometimes, and I'm not accusing all institutions that have this of this, but I'm just in my own observation. Many institutions. Um, they, they think that if they partner with another organization, it's going to benefit the other organization. It's, it's like pastors who don't want to do joint things with another church in the community because they think, well, what if my people see that church and they like that pastor better or that you know ministry and, and they'll leave me? And, and so there's this fear and in, in this like we, we and so I'm not talking about legitimate like you know we don't agree with that theology, let's not partner. I'm talking about like more of like a, a competition kind of thing. Um, 
I think that 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 prevents some of that working together, unfortunately. And I don't know how to break that. I think you, you would it, it would need to form organically. There would need to be some people who are mature enough and and have the vision also to see that this is a need and then to start hosting events, uh, whether small or large, um, inviting uh, people f- from different denominations to come to their house or come to their um, their event and and then uh, giving them a seat at the table and and, and just and, and talking and and really you know y- y- I'm sure you know this when guys just sit down and talk things happen you you don't need even a formal like structure necessarily just just getting together can often build these relationships that can turn into something mm-hmm. um, but a united front would be good at least to 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 make a statement that. Um, that that this is more than just one denomination or one group from one denomination that's concerned about this. This is something that, broadly speaking, all Christians see as a threat to orthodoxy. Uh, and there might be resources that can be shared. Um, obviously, you know, I was at an event with you where I'm not a, a Lutheran, but I'm sharing my observations mostly from other denominations. Mm-hmm. And now we're sharing resources together. I mean, that would this have happened had we not been at the same event? And so it, it, I think if we can do this on a larger scale, um, I, I mean, I, I learned from you, you learn from me, we learn from each other. I, I think that it will strengthen us. Yeah. And that was the big takeaway that I got from you, which is that, you know, these shepherds, th- those who want to be faithful, who have courage and want to prevent, um, they really have two tasks, to admonish the unruly as well as encouraging the faint-hearted. And sometimes we get so focused on one or the other that we forget that there are really two tasks. That's right. That's a great way to put it. And, and I use that verse often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you If you can make a separation between those two things, I think it, it goes a long way. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, for your time and for all of your insights. I I really found this framework of the activists, the managers, the academics, and the shepherds, and then uh, all of their uh, uh, mindsets and uh, as well as activities that go along with each of those is is a really great framework. Um, And uh, just had a great time getting to meet you as well as chatting with you today. So thanks again. Yeah. Feelings mutual. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. All right. God bless you. God bless you.